This podcast is supported by 10 of those. 10 of those is a Christian publishing company that serves local churches and ministries by providing quality Christian resources at affordable prices. 10 of those does this by buying resources we love in bulk. This allows them to pass the savings on to you and ensures that life-changing resources actually get in the hands of the people who use them. While 10 of those is a business, they are committed to using their profits to provide evangelistic resources to communities that otherwise could not afford them. When you buy from 10 of those, you help support their mission to equip the church to make Christ known throughout the world. You can buy from 10 of those directly at 10 or at one of their many pop-up bookstores. We at Baptist 21 have partnered with them before for events, and we love working with them. In fact, they're just tremendous to work with, and we hope you will check them out. Coming up, they're going to be at T4G, as well as the Gospel Coalition's Women's Conference and the Worship God Conference. You should definitely check out 10 of those. So go to 10 today. Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Well, welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And this week on the podcast, I have with me uh, Dallas Van Diver. Dallas is an assistant professor of Christian studies at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina, a good Baptist school there in South Carolina. And recently, Dallas has written a book called Who Can Take the Lord's Supper? A Biblical Theological Argument for Close Communion. And so we're going to talk today about communion, uh, who can, just the title of the book, Who Can Take the Lord's Supper? Obviously, we want to look at the scriptures. We will talk some about this book in hopes that you will pick this book up as well. Uh, this is an important topic, Baptist, for forever, since Baptists have been around. I've had conversations about who can take the Lord's Supper, uh, and so excited to have Dallas on the podcast. Brother, thanks for taking time to be on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Hey, well, Dallas, just give us a brief bio, like how you, how you came to know the Lord, how you got into ministry. Great. Um, I was raised in a Christian home in Mississippi. Dad's a campus minister. He was when I uh, was born and campus minister like BCM, BSU. So um, I grew up here in the gospel, grew up in our local church. And as a very young child, heard the gospel a lot, but it finally came home to me one day talking to mom about why did Jesus have to die? When I understood mm-hmm. that he took the punishment um, that sinners deserve, and that that would be for me if I received mm-hmm. him, that he, uh, he loved me in that way. That's what uh, awakened the, the love in my heart to see why his death was loving, why I needed Jesus so much. And I knew I needed him. I knew I loved Jesus to some level, but that was uh, made the gospel so clear as she talked mm-hmm. about that. So trusted Christ and um, began following him as a young child. The Lord called me to ministry. Um, pretty early in high school. I didn't know what that would look like, and so just started pursuing, trying to follow Jesus, doing it very imperfectly, um, mm. a mixture of my own sin, but also clear evidence that the Lord was at work and helping me and leading me along. Mm. And so we went after, uh, did music education at Mississippi State, thought I was headed to music ministry, and then went to Southwestern Seminary, and I got to preaching and hermeneutics, and I was like, okay, I love music ministry. I've got to teach and preach the Bible. Mm. And then from there, the Lord's allowed me to serve on a few different church staffs in various roles, different pastoral positions, and then uh, private Christian school preaching and teaching as well. And so 
Yeah, I love making disciples, helping people know Jesus, love Jesus, trust him, and to grow together to be more like him. So that's that's even what part of this book is about. It's awesome. How did you so where'd you grow up again? North Mississippi near Tupelo. Okay. And then you get the name Dallas. How did, how did you get that name? If you've ever heard of the old uh, Christian singer Dallas Holm, um, that's part of it. And then mom met a little boy named Dallas at a church one time that she was very impressed with. And so those, that's the two namesakes. The, the, uh, we, we grew up in Dallas. The only thing I can remember is, uh, it's maybe this is probably before your time, but in the movie Teen Wolf, the basketball coach says, never play cards with a guy whose name starts with a, you know, first name is a city. And so that's funny. Dallas, man, it fits, fits the bill. Uh, teen, you didn't think you'd hear about Teen Wolf today on the podcast. I'm I did sure. not. <laughs> so, Hey, a couple just more, uh, bio questions kind of, we usually for first time guests, we'll kind of ask some questions around favorite sports and books and things like that. So let's, let's just do that real quick. Uh, kind of first answer that comes to mind, um, Favorite book that's not the Bible, and you can't say who can take the Lord's Supper. So favorite book that's not the Bible. Sure. Maybe Knowledge of the Holy. Mm. Go back and forth. Desiring God was really helpful for me. Still is. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I awesome. Name that, those, those are good. Okay. Favorite athlete of all time. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Yeah. yeah the next question was Jordan or LeBron. And you've obviously already rightfully answered that question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, grew up in the South, so favorite food? Oh, man. Cornbread dressing in the South. I, I've been just, Kentucky's just far enough north that some people don't know what you mean by cornbread dressing, but I love the stuff. Interesting. If if your favorite food didn't used to have parents, I don't think it's a good answer, but uh, we'll take <laughs> we'll take, we'll take cornbread. Uh <laughs> Dream concert, and by that mean dead or alive. So if you could have heard anybody in concert, who would it be? Oh, I think um, I think the Eagles when everybody was still around. <laughs> I love the Eagles stuff. There you go. All right, last one. What was the text of your first sermon you preached on a Sunday morning in a church service? Romans chapter 8, and I bit off way more than I could choose. <laughs> yeah, I think I... I was probably preaching about half the chapter, and um, the the Lord graciously used it. And also, I look back and like, okay, Lord, thank you for helping that congregation through my errors. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know guys who won't preach Romans until they're years into their ministry. So Romans eight just went right for the the good stuff right out of the gates. It's oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, hey, well, thanks. This helps our, our our hearers get a chance to know you a little bit. All right, so let's talk. Who can take the Lord's supper and yeah. Um, you know, mainly on this, listening to this podcast, you have pastors, leaders, uh, and, and even just, you know, lay people as well. So lay out for us the different positions. Uh, you know, we have open, close, close. Can you just lay out? I mean, I, again, there might be a myriad of those, but four or five of the three or four or four or five of the most, uh, you know, held to ones. Sure. Yeah. So the, there have been people who have, um, cataloged them in different ways. I, I chose to more summarize them under four big headings, and mm -hmm. they would be um, first ecumenical communion, be kind of right. the broadest, and I'll give you some definitions of these, sure. and then um, ecumenical open, close, and closed. Mm -hmm. So as you're, you're moving kind of from the broadest to the, the most restricted, that, that's where we would go. Uh, if Definitions for these, let's, let's see, let me give you pretty brief here. Ecumenical is really 
views that all Christians should be received at communion in any given local Baptist church on the basis of a common process of initiation mm -hmm. that includes a profession of faith, baptism, and the baptism could be, it's loosely understood, by a fusion like pouring, sprinkling, yep. um, or immersion. And the subject of baptism, who is baptized, could be an infant, a child, or an adult. Um, and sometimes by saying a process of initiation, they may include confirmation. And they don't mm -hmm. necessarily care the order of those events. Uh, right. Open communion is the view that all believers are authorized to participate in the Lord's Supper in any given local Baptist church by virtue of their common profession of faith. And sometimes, like with John Bunyan, evidence of a holy life. Mm -hmm. Close communion is the view that I defend in my book. And it refers to the view that only those who have been baptized as professing believers by immersion and our members in good standing of a church of light, faith, and order may participate in communion. Close. And I want to come. I want to come back to that in a minute because okay. I would argue that, like the Baptist Faith and Message two thousand, actually advocates a close communion um, position. And I, I want to talk about that in a minute. But sure. uh, historically, I mean, you'll get into this more, and you know more about this than I do. But historically, Baptists have held to a close communion, but. But there's obviously been disagreements. I want to talk through that a little bit. Uh, but that's the close communion. And then, and then I guess, final one, close communion. Give us yeah, the definition there. Yeah, and so there. close with an E at the end versus closed with a D at the end. Closed is the view that local church members only may participate in communion by virtue of their baptism upon a profession of faith in Christ. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree with you, though, as far as Southern Baptist. The yeah, and I even heard this week I was having a conversation with a pastor friend who knew of some... Uh, churches that would not allow you to take the Lord's Supper unless you'd been baptized in their church, uh, okay. which was which is a very like landmarker type, uh, even more actually not even more maybe uh, Campbellite than um, landmarker. Okay, so uh, you've laid out the different positions. I want to ask this question first before I get you to really specifically talk about why you think close communion is most biblical. Yeah, I think the first question is why does this matter? Like why are we arguing about this? Why would we? In some sense, I know the, the pushback would be, why would we want to refuse anybody at the Lord's Supper? Why does this conversation matter? Sure. So who actually takes the Lord's Supper is indicative of a, who a, any given Christian believes they have responsibility for and has responsibility for them. Mm -hmm. So it's indicative of, um, you know, those folks, that's the ones that I'm especially responsible to weep with those folks when they weep. Um, that they are going to encourage me when I'm falling short, that they're going to bear my burdens with me, all those one another commands of Scripture. The Lord's Supper is really just an emblem of, there's more to it than this, but it is an emblem of who is responsible to do that for you and who you're responsible to do that for, especially. Mm -hmm. That's good. good. All right, so give me the biblical reason for why you think close communion uh, is, is the proper uh, position for us to hold to. Sure. So, the, and there are lots of good ones from history. Um, I, I expanded on, or you might say undergirded, some of what I had seen already argued. Um, and that was that my, my thesis, I was basing it on, you have a, an association of baptism with faith in the New Testament. Um, everywhere, I think, baptism is, is associated with faith. You have the example of Acts 2.41 and 42, those who believed, uh, received the word of the gospel, believed, were baptized, they were mm -hmm. added to the church, and then they began to break bread together, which is seen by most scholars as uh, 
way of saying take the Lord's Supper together. So you have association of faith and baptism, the example of Acts 2.41 and 42. I expanded from what I had seen in a lot of the historical literature because I argued that what you have in the, on the basis of covenantal signs, that my thesis was um, baptism is the sign of initiation, and the sign of initiation precedes, goes before, the sign of participation in the new covenant. And the way I made that argument was to kind of look at a whole biblical theology of uh, covenant signs, and I was making a comparison and contrast of circumcision and baptism, and a comparison contrast of Passover Lord's Supper. Because what mm -hmm. you get in the Old Testament is a command that only those who are circumcised can take the Passover. Mm. That's Exodus chapter 12, 43 through 49. We're missing that command. It's not stated as such in the New Testament, or it would just be a pretty easy case, and we wouldn't even have to debate it so much unless we were just right. saying we wanted to disagree with what Scripture says. Um, but because we're missing the command, that's where a lot of the debate comes in. So you're having to put together a lot of different pieces of what is the church and how does baptism function and all these things. So I argue that we don't necessarily need a command uh, in order to understand that it's a whole biblical theological principle that the sign of entry should precede the sign of participation. And I did that by essentially, I'm really boiling it down here, but that circumcision um, is a sign, it's a type of it's doing two things it's setting apart a seed of adam a seed of the woman mm. seed of abraham who would eventually come and crush the head of the serpent circumcisions needed to mark out the old testament ethnic israelites to lead to jesus but mm. circumcision is also picked up throughout the law and then the prophets to speak about foreskinned hearts um, yeah. your hearts need to be circumcised circumcise your heart so it's indicative of a stony heart a an unwilling heart to follow God and obey his commandments out of a heart of love for him. And so essentially, I'm arguing that when you get to the New Testament, the circumcision of Christ, there are a couple of different ways you can take that phrase in Colossians 2, but either way, it entails that God does a work on the heart of a Christian. And then it says, you have been circumcised with a circumcision without hands, having been buried with him in baptism. And I think that having been buried with him in baptism, what's happening is, if I retrace my steps again, you had a physical sign of circumcision that was meant to tell everybody your heart needs to be circumcised, but that heart circumcision was not provided under the stipulations and promises of the old covenant. Christ comes, and Christ is the one who can change the heart. And in the new covenant, what happens is anybody who comes to Christ has this changed heart, and baptism is an emblem of, a reflection of, uh, the work that is already done. Circumcision was a promise of you need a new heart. Baptism is a reflection of Christ has given me a new heart. Mm, so there's good. a lot of continuity. Yeah, and, and that, yeah, that's helpful. Obviously, you're kind of pointing out the, the the initiating ordinance before the participating ordinance. Love that language. I think again, historically, Baptists have been there. I want to I want to talk about that some. You did mention Acts two. So yeah. you said most scholars think that when they're breaking bread together there in Acts two, that's the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Uh, so does that mean they're taking the Lord's Supper daily? No, good. Yeah, good question. There, there are a few grammatical things that are, are worth looking at maybe in more attention, but I, I would point you to the book for it. But the, mm -hmm. maybe the biggest point is to say in Acts 2.42, it looks like we're talking about they're breaking bread in the temple courts. In Acts 2.46, because you have a, mm -hmm. the difference between an articular noun and 2.42, 
and not articular breaking of bread in 246. It looks like we're talking about more fellowship meals in home. That's the first time we heard articular on the Baptist 21 part podcast, if, if you're scoring at home. So that, that's helpful. Uh, so Acts, Acts 2.42, uh, I, I mean, I think that's a good argument. 2.42, they're taking it at the Temple Mount. 2.46, it's in homes, and we're maybe talking about distinct things there. Um, I, I want to—is I, there any—I I don't want you to get—so I appreciate you giving the cliff notes. I don't want to give away the book. I want people to pick the book up. So continue to give just, hey, you know, snippets so that people will check this out. But I do want to ask— is there any section in the book that kind of addresses uh, objections? So is there like a specific thing, or is it more of you just laying out this case you've already kind of started to give us? This podcast is supported by 10 of those. 10 of those is a Christian publishing company that serves local churches and ministries by providing quality Christian resources at affordable prices. 10 of those does this by buying resources we love in bulk. This allows them to pass the savings on to you and ensures that life-changing resources actually get in the hands of the people who use them. While 10 of those is a business, they are committed to using their profits to provide evangelistic resources to communities that otherwise could not afford them. When you buy from 10 of those, you help support their mission to equip the church to make Christ known throughout the world. You can buy from 10 of those directly at 10 or at one of their many pop-up bookstores. We at Baptist 21 have partnered with them before for events, and we love working with them. In fact, they're just tremendous to work with, and we hope you will check them out. Coming up, they're going to be at T4G, as well as the Gospel Coalition's Women's Conference and the Worship God Conference. You should definitely check out 10 of those. So go to 10 today. Good question. Yeah, I have a whole chapter where I'm dealing with objections and remind myself what the chapter number is, but um, chapter five, because oh, in yeah, the beginning of the book, what I do is lay out what I see as the strongest arguments from the strongest proponents of all the views, of all those four Good. views. Yeah. And so then I start to lay out what I, I think is my biblical argument and that I've not seen anybody argue in this way before. And then I come back to, I want to interact with these historic Baptist proponents from the various different views. And so in chapter five of my book, that's what I do. So I respond to the open communion, the ecumenical, the open, and then the close, um, trying to give where I think they are falling short. Though, you know, certainly I want to commend charity and a general Catholicity of spirit toward brothers and sisters um, who hold to different views on these second order issues. But by mm-hmm. second order and theological triage, we mean those things uh, that would unite us with other local churches and that we need to yeah. actually have a position on in order to function rightly as a local church. That's good. So, so you're going to get to some of that in the book. Historically, where have Baptists been on this topic for the majority? Again, you're going to find, uh, you're going to find your John Bunyans, you're going to find guys who would have different positions. But historically, where have we generally found ourselves? And, and talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so there have been repeated debates in Baptist history on this issue because, um, for instance, in 1644, the First London Confession, that they didn't address it. 1646, they have an appendix where they mentioned some affirmation of baptism before the Lord's Supper, that it would be prerequisite to uh, participation in the meal. And yet they didn't include it as a part of the actual statement of faith because they wanted to allow for charity. Interesting. Um, mm. So as you go through the, the history from about 1641-42, uh, 
um, and extending all the way, think of, through the landmark movement, you have a very strong presentation of, uh, not necessarily in the confessions, though it is in multiple different ones of them, but it's Baptist faith and message especially, it's been there. Um, we've had it there since, since early on, and it's in the New Hampshire. But so you have some affirmation in some of the confessions, but this has been an issue of live debate. For instance, you have uh, William Kiffin versus John Bunyan, and there was a lot of pamphleteering back and forth over this matter from them. And then you have a debate between Robert Hall Jr. and Joseph Kinghorn, and Andrew Fuller and Abraham Booth were um, implicated in some of their writings with this as well. And the general position, I think that the majority position has been close communion. Um, open communion has more been the outlier, um, but there have been enough open communion advocates who have advocated for their position that you can find it in the literature represented, um, though not necessarily in the, the confessions of faith. Sometimes when you have it in confessions, you usually have close communion, but oftentimes in the confessions, mm -hmm. it's left out to allow for charity and local churches to determine that matter. Yeah, though, again, we would both argue that in the BFNM 2000, it's not explicitly stated in the sense of close communion, but it's it defines exactly what baptism is, then it defines exactly who can take the Lord's Supper, and it's connected to those who have been baptized by immersion. Um, so let's maybe hit a couple of, of objections and then get some final thoughts. But, you know, I, I'm sure that you're going to get the, why would you ever want to bar a Christian from the Lord's Supper? That's an objection. I mean, in some sense... I know you could even argue like the apostles take the Lord's Supper before they're baptized, uh, which is, again, strange given the the timing. Um, it doesn't seem like our confession that we hold to for our convention is confused on this. It is not. But just address some of those those um, those objections just briefly. Sure. So when you're looking at, for example, um, ecumenical communion, um, as they argue from their view, they, they see that the common process of initiation is, is important to recognize, so they don't want to delegitimize anyone's particular uh, background and upbringing and convictions. And so it essentially amounts to allowing an individual to determine what baptism is. So if you think about that, a local church in order to practice baptism actually has to decide what it believes baptism is based on the New Testament. It has yeah. to because they're either going to baptize infants or not. They're either going to sprinkle or immerse or maybe like some denominations choose to do both. But even if they choose to do both, they're not choosing to do both based upon a biblical conviction per se. They're actually saying we don't think the Bible is clear enough on what the mode of baptism is. And so we'll let an individual determine it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So yeah. ecumenical communion advocates are wanting to emphasize um, the individual's own interpretation of Scripture and how they want to come to Christ. And they, they often will indicate that they want to limit baptism to professing believers but open the table. So it, it's actually a pretty broad view. There's sometimes even language about somebody could become a Christian by taking the Lord's Supper. You call it a converting ordinance. The Lord uses the Lord's Supper to bring somebody who's un an unbeliever to faith for the first time. The issue is that, that that idea that we would individually be able to define what baptism or the Lord's Supper is, um, God has actually given that responsibility to local churches, I think, in giving us the responsibility of uh, binding and loosing the keys of the kingdom. 
that part of that is gospel proclamation, exercising the keys. Part of that, though, is affirming those who seem to be true professors. Um, best we can tell, we can't read the heart, but they seem to be giving a credible profession of faith. We are to evaluate that as churches, and especially that falls on the pastors of a church, in order to say, we affirm you in your profession of Christ, and we want to baptize you. To relegate that responsibility of determining what baptism is and what a proper entrance into God's people looks like to the individual seems to be derelict on the part of the church and the pastors themselves. Um, and it often actually ends up to going outside of Scripture's own view. Open communion, I think, has its strongest argument in saying there's a lack of scriptural warrant. Mm -hmm. um, they, they say if there is a command, Bunyan, uh, Robert Hall Jr., they all pretty much that I read and cataloged in my, my study said if there were a clear command, we wouldn't be debating this issue. Um, I think what they're missing is, but if you ask the question, how does baptism function in relation to faith? Um, Faith and baptism are so consistently together that Paul can write to the Romans and the Colossians and assume that everybody in these churches have been baptized. And if you look at what his description of baptism is, it's what well, it has to do with baptism means union with Christ. It's an emblem of having your sins forgiven, having a new heart being given to you, having the Holy Spirit living inside, that you have died with Christ and you're now already raised, that already not yet aspect where some things are already true of us. Um, because of what Christ has done and bringing the future salvation into the here and now. So baptism is an emblem of union with Christ. And if you say, how do I come into the covenant community? How I, do I come into the church? Well, in Acts and in Paul's letters, I think you don't have to have the scriptural warrant. You must baptize before you take the Lord's Supper because Paul is everywhere presenting the way I come into this relationship with God is through faith in Christ internally, you call it internal appropriation, putting on Christ by faith, but I externally appropriate that. I formally and publicly show that by being baptized. And then, so you are, uh, all of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. I think there's a baptism of the spirit language that's talking about there because you're all made to drink of one spirit, but like Schreiner and Moo, for example, two New Testament commentators, I don't think we should strongly disassociate water baptism with spirit baptism, though I think it's only an actual believer who would want to pursue baptism. So I'm not saying the water regenerates in any sense. Right, right. Um, open communion folks will often say, receive those Christ receives. First, uh, from Romans chapter 14 and 15. But it's interesting in Romans 14 and 15, Paul is talking to a church of people who are already baptized based on Romans chapter 6. Mm -hmm. It's a different issue. There's a lot going on in Romans 14 and 15, but it has more to do with covenantal issues moving from the old to the new than differences over something like baptism, a second order issue. Um, I'll, I'll be brief on closed communion, just give you one. I think I agree with a lot of emphases in closed communion. Part of the problem with closed communion is they are completely um, disavowing the notion of the universal church. And there's sufficient evidence, I think, of, I mean, Acts 9, 9.31, 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the body of the church, Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. There's a universal church sense, a given in the New Testament, so that everybody who's united with Christ is part of that universal church. And closed communion doesn't adequately acknowledge that the universal church is real, 
and yet it is meant to be manifested in local bodies of Christ where you actually have pastors and the ordinances being taken and the one another commands being carried out. And so because of that, I would see it as appropriate for a baptized believer to go to a different local church and take the Lord's Supper with them, uh, though that church, in a way, they're kind of responsible for their church discipline for that week. You know what I'm yep. saying? But yeah. in, a, in another sense as well, we recognize, well, they're going back to their own local church. And so you can have conversations about what if somebody's visiting somewhere for three months at a time or something. But that, that's a little bit beyond our scope here. But read yeah. it in the book. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, exactly. Pick up the book. Check it out. Yeah. I appreciate very much your, your charity on that because, I mean, I have, again, I'm very convictional on my view of closed communion, but I have really good brothers and sisters who are really sharp, who disagree and would hold to open or even closed. So I have people on all sides. So I appreciate um, the charity by which kind of giving the best arguments of the other position. I think we don't do that often enough. And so I appreciate that about the book. It is interesting. I think I mentioned this before we came on to the recording. All the way back, even to the Didache, you have a close communion. Uh, you have to be immersed in living water. Uh, our Pedro Baptist friends missed that. And then in order to take the Lord's Supper, you have to have been uh, baptized again in, in living water. Uh, and I think your argument about the conscience, uh, Bobby Jameson makes this argument in going public really, really helpfully that uh, by not making this a church ordinance, but leaving it up to the conscience of the individual, individual Christian, uh, then it, it inherently puts it on them rather than on the church. And it kind of takes mm -hmm. it from being a church ordinance, which some open communion advocates would say it's a Christian ordinance, not a church ordinance. And I think they do that to obviously defend their position. But I I would have problems with that because I think that opens Pandora's box about any sort of governing, e even connecting it to, to, to church discipline makes it nearly impossible if it's a Christian ordinance and not a church ordinance. Um, I, I just want to ask a couple more questions, then I'll, I'll you know get you out of here and Again, would say pick up the book, and we could have we could talk for two or three hours on the Lord's Supper. So it'd be good to have even advocates for some of these other positions to come on the podcast and talk and to hear why they hold to it. Uh, I don't know if you address this much in the book, but the the uh, this is one I think it gets confused sometimes in our circles when it talks about in First Corinthians eleven to take the table in a worthy manner. What what do you think is going on there in First Corinthians when Paul's giving those instructions? Yeah, so. When, when Paul says, take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, he has just laid out for the church his reflection on the report he's received about the disunity going on in the congregation. And as he has sketched that out, it appears that that is the main issue, that they are, there are some in the church who are coming together and eating a fuller meal um, and not waiting for other possibly poorer members of the church to come and show up and join in the meal with them, which it would explain they're having a broader meal, you might the agape feast, and then they're having the Lord's Supper at the end of it. And so in not waiting for their other brothers and sisters, that's how there would even be the possibility of getting drunk, for example, right. which Paul mentions. Um, I, I think the major issue though that he's dealing with is, is the lack of unity. Um, they are viewing where the gospel should produce this notion that I completely, I'm completely undeserving of God's grace, and yet he's brought me into his family by faith in Christ, and therefore he's brought me into relationship. A new covenant kind of relationship with Jesus leads to this new covenant kind of relationship with the body of Christ, um, and therefore I want to serve my brothers and sisters and love them and be deferential toward them wherever I can. This church was apparently not doing that, and the rich right. were pushing down, oppressing in a certain way the poor by eating without them and eating all the food before they got there. 
So worthy manner is especially to do in context with the, that lack of unity. So I would see it very practically as something like when a church member would, is ready to go and take the Lord's Supper, and yet they have a disagreement with a brother or sister, kind of like Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, that you leave your gift at the altar and you go and settle that matter between your brother and sister. Or if that's not literally possible in the way the setting is, at the very least, there's a, a decision of heart and conscience that I'm going to resolve this matter and not let this uh, continue to fester, this disagreement between brother or sister and myself. Um, I don't think Worthy Manor is intended to make Christians who struggle with sin and fight sin by the power of the Spirit um, feel unworthy in themselves to take the Lord's Supper, as if I could never be good enough to take the meal, I'm just going to abstain. I think that's a bad reading of it. I do think that we should teach Christians teach our churches that you know our ongoing walk with Jesus all throughout the week is going to look like turning from sin and continuing to believe in Jesus. That was an initial thing, yeah, and it shows up in a walking with Christ. So don't wait till Sunday when you take the Lord's Supper to turn from sin again, to repent. But I do think secondarily, worthy manner could have the implication of if you are holding on to some unrepentant, unconfessed sin, it might be that you, yeah, abstain in that case. I would hope that would be a rare occurrence because we're believers turning from sin throughout the week. That's good. That's helpful. Uh, re really helpful. So last two questions. Tell us about the series. So the monographs in Baptist history. Tell us about any final thoughts about the book, where they can pick it up. Uh, but so this is in the series called Monographs in Baptist History, title of the book, Who Can Take the Lord's Supper? So uh, anything about the series and then any final thoughts about the book? Sure. Dr. Haken, Michael Haken from Southern Seminary is uh, just a, a gift to the church and as far as historians goes, and he's the editor of this series. There are over 20 volumes in it at this point. Some are having to do with worship in Baptist churches um, in various aspects as far as how you order your worship. Some have to do more with salvation or a particular figure in Baptist history, but lot, there's actually a wide breadth. Uh, it's just Baptist history. If it has anything to do with that, he's, he's taking it on. So there's a lot to be gleaned from the series. Um, and so I'm excited about the series in itself. Mm. Did you have another one after that? No, th th that was really helpful on the series. I think the last uh, question was just any final thoughts on the book, where they can find it, where they can get it. Um, and yeah, any final thoughts there? Sure. So as you're looking at this book, you've got uh, some options for different versions of it. So I certainly... Um, encourage look at look at a Kindle version if that seems uh, like it's the the most affordable thing that you can get your hands on. That's great. Um, the, this book is laid out in terms of history, Old Testament, New Testament, comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, answering objections, and then in the last chapter, just trying to be very practical in terms of church membership. And so I, I hope it encourages really healthy churches of believers that love one another and are recognizing the responsibilities we have toward one another in following Jesus together. So good, so helpful. I would definitely recommend uh, picking this up. Obviously, this is an important conversation. There's a lot of disagreement. So this is one where you're going to find even good arguments for the other positions, but also a well-thought-through argument for uh, close communion, which, again, uh, is we've said it enough, but it is the position of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which we kind of rally around uh, so, uh, Dallas, so thankful for the work you put into this. Thankful for the work you're doing there at North Greenville. And thank you, brother, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Baptist One podcast.
Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.